0: Welcome back to um, my shoddy audiobook of the Nightingale. This is Chapter 4, June 1940, France. The medieval villa dominated a deeply green forested hillside. It looked like something in a confectioner's shop window. A castle sculpted of caramel with spun sugar windows and shutters the color of candied apples. Far below, a deep blue lake absorbed the reflection of the clouds. Manicured gardens allowed the villa's occupants, and more important, their guests. To stroll around the grounds where, where only acceptable topics were to be discussed. In the four-month dining room, Isabel Rosignol sat... Rosignol, probably Rosignol. I kind of said it like I was fancy, but I'm not. Isabel Rosignol sat stiffly erect at the, white ta- at the white cloth table that easily accommodated 24 diners. Everything in this room was pale. Walls and floor and ceiling were all crafted of oyster-hued stone. The ceiling arched into a peak nearly 20 feet overhead. Sound was amplified in this cold room, as trapped as the occupants. Madame Dufour stood at the head of the table, dressed in a severe black dress that revealed a soup spoon-sized hollow at the base of her neck. A single diamond brooch was her only adornment. One good piece, ladies, and two so well. Everything makes a statement. Nothing speaks quite so loudly as cheapness. Her narrow face ended in a blunt chin and was framed by curls so obviously peroxide the desired impression of youth was quite undone. The trick, she was saying in a cultivated voice, clipped and cut, is to be completely quiet and unremarkable in your task. Each of the girls at the table wore the fitted blue woolen jacket and skirt that was a school uniform. It wasn't so bad in the winter, but on this hot June afternoon, the ensemble was unbearable. Isabel could feel herself beginning to sweat, and no amount of lavender in her soap could mask the sharp scent of her perspiration. She stared down at the unpeeled orange placed in the center of her Limoges china plate. Flatware lay in precise formation on either side of the plate. Salad fork, dinner fork, knife, spoon, butter knife, fish fork. It went on and on. Now, Madame Dufour said, pick up your correct utensils quietly. S'il vous plaît. C'est- is that how you say it? I'm just learning French now, because that's s'il vous plaît, but it's spelled i l. Cool. Okay. Sorry. Returning back to the actual text. Now, Madame Dufour said, pick up the correct utensils quietly, s'il vous plaît, quietly, and peel your orange. Isabel picked up her fork and tried to ease the sharp prongs into the heavy peel, but the orange rolled away from her and bumped it over the gilt edge of the plate, clattering the china. Merde, M-E-R-D-E, she muttered, grabbing the orange before it fell to the floor. Merde, Madame Dufour was beside her. I, I don't know what that means. I'm going to look it up. Okay, it means shit. So Isabel almost... Dropped the orange, she said shit, and then Madame de was like, shit, excuse me? You know what I'm saying? Okay. Isabel jumped in her seat. Mon Dieu. <laughs> I hate that this isn't French. This is terrible. I'm so sorry. Okay. Isabel jumped in her seat. Mon Dieu. The woman moved like a viper in the reeds. Pardon, pardon, Madame, Isabel said, returning the orange to its place. Mademoiselle Rosinal, Madame said, how is it that you have graced our halls for two years and learned so little? Isabel again stabbed the orange with her fork—a graceless but effective move. Then she smiled up at Madame. Generally, Madame, the failing of a student to learn to learn is the failing of a teacher to teach. Breaths were and drawn all down the table. Ah, Madame said, so we are the reason you still cannot eat manage to eat an orange properly. Isabel tried to slice the peel too hard, too fast. The silver blade slipped off the puckered peel and clinged on the china plate. Madame Dufour's hand snaked out; her fingers, co- her fingers coiled around Isabel's wrist. All up and on the table the girls watched polite conversation girls madame said smiling thinly no one wants a statue for a dinner partner on cue the girls began speaking quietly to one another about things that did not interest Isabel gardening weather fashion acceptable topics for women Isabel heard the, door next to her, the girl next to her say quietly I am so very fond of Alan lace aren't you and really it was all she could do to keep from screaming mademoiselle Rosignol madame said you will go see Madame Allard and tell her that her hour experiment has come to an end. What does that mean? She will know. Go. Isabel scooted back from the table quickly, lest Madame change her mind. Madame's face scrunched in displeasure at in the, loud, the loud screech the chairs chair legs made on the stone floor. Isabel smiled. I really do not like oranges, you know. Really? Madame said sarcastically. Isabel wanted to run from the stifling room, but she was already in enough trouble, so she forced herself to walk slowly, her shoulders back, her chin up. At the stairs, which she could navigate with three books on her head if required, she glanced sideways, saw that she was alone, and rushed down. In the hallway below, she slowed and straightened. By the time she reached the headmistress's office, she wasn't even breathing hard. She knocked. At Madame's flat, come in, Isabel opened the door. Madame Allard sat behind a gilt-trimmed mahogany writing desk. Medieval tapestries hung from the stone walls of the room and an arched, leaded glass window overlooked gardens so sculpted that they were more art than nature. Even birds rarely landed here. No doubt they sensed the stifling atmosphere and flew on. Isabel sat down, remembering an instant too late that she hadn't been offered a seat. She popped back up. She popped back up. Pardon, madam. Sit down, Isabel. She did, carefully grazing her ankles as lady would, clasping her hands together. Madame DeFor asked me to tell you that the experiment is over. Madame reached for one of the Murano fountain pens on her desk and picked it up, tapping it on the desk. Why are you here, Isabel? I hate oranges. Pardon? And if I were to eat an orange, which honestly, madam, why would I when I don't like them? I would use my hands like the Americans do, like everyone does, really. A fork and knife to eat an orange? I mean, why are you at the school? Oh, that. Well, the convent of the Sacred Heart in Avignon expelled me for nothing, I might add. In the Sisters of Saint Francis, uh, they had reason to expel me. In the school before that, Isabel didn't know what to say. Madame put down her fountain fa- pen. You are almost nineteen, we, oui, madam. I think it's time for you to leave. Isabel got to her feet. Shall I return to the orange lesson? You misunderstand. I mean you should leave the school, Isabel. It is clear that you are not interested in learning what we have to teach you. How to eat an orange and when you can spread cheese and who is more important, the second son of a duke or a daughter who won't inherit or an ambassador to an unimportant country? Madam, do you not know what is going on in the world? Isabel might have been secreted to in the countryside, but she still knew. Even here, barricaded behind hedges and bludgeoned by politeness, she knew what was happening in France. At night in her monastic cell, while her classmates were in bed, she sat up long into the night, listening to the BBC on her contraband radio. France had joined Britain in declaring war on Germany, and Hitler was on the move. All across France, people have stockpiled food and put up blackout shades and learned to live like moles in the dark. They had prepared and worried, and then nothing. Month after month, nothing happened. At first, all anyone could talk about was the great war and the losses that had touched so many families. But as the months went on, and there was only talk of war, Isabel heard her teachers calling it the drolet de gare, something like that. The phony war. The real horror was somewhere, happening elsewhere in Europe, in Belgium and Holland and Poland. Will manners not matter in war, Isabel? They don't matter now, Isabel said impulsively, wishing a moment later that she'd said nothing. Madame stood. We were never the right place for you, but my father would put, would put me anywhere to be rid of me, she said. Isabel would rather blurt out the truth than hear another lie. She had learned many lessons in the parade of schools and convents that had housed her for more than a decade. Most of all, she had learned that she had to rely on herself. Certainly her father and her sister couldn't be counted on. Madame looked at Isabel. Her nose flared ever so slightly, an indication of polite but pained disapproval. It is hard for a man to lose his wife. It is hard for a girl to lose her mother, she smiled defiantly. I lost both parents, though, didn't I? One died, and the other turned his back on me. I can't say which hurt more. Mon Dieu, Isabel, must you always speak whenever, whatever is on your mind? Isabel had heard this criticism all her life, but why should she hold her tongue? No one listened to her either way. So you will leave today. I will telegram your father. Tomas will take you to the train. Tonight, Isabel blinked. But Papa won't want me. Ah, uh, consequences, Madame said. Perhaps now you will see that they should be considered. Isabel was alone on the train again, heading toward an unknown reception. She stared at the dirty, mottled window at the flashing green landscape, fields of hay, red roofs, stone cottages, gray bridges, horses. Everything looked exactly as it always had, and that surprised her. War was coming, and she'd imagined it would leave a mark on the countryside somehow, changing the grass color or killing the trees or scaring away the birds. But now, as she sat on this train chugging into Paris, she saw that everything looked completely ordinary. At the sprawling de Lion, the train came to a wheezing, belching stop. Isabel reached down for the small valise at her feet and pulled it onto her lap. As she watched the passenger shuffle past her, exiting the train carriage, the question she'd avoided came back to her, Papa. She wanted to believe he would welcome her home, that finally he would hold out his hands and say her name in a loving way, the way he had before, when Mama had been the glue that held them together. Also, before there is capitalized, if that means anything to you. She stared down at her her scuffed suitcase, so small. Most of the girls in the schools she'd attended had arrived with a collection of trunks bound in leather straps instead of with brass tacks. They had pictures on their desks and and mementos on their nightstands and photograph albums in their drawers. Isabel had a single framed photograph of a woman she wanted to remember and couldn't. When she tried, all that came to her were blurry images of people crying and the physician shaking his head and her mother saying something about holding tightly to her sister's hand, as if that would help. Vianne had been as quick to abandon Isabel as Papa had been. She realized that she had, was the only one left on the carriage. Clasping her suitcase in her gloved hand, she s- sidled out of the seat and exited the carriage. The platforms were full of people. Trains stood in shuddering rows, smoke filled the air, puffed up toward the high arched ceiling. Somewhere at this, a whistle blared. Great iron wheels began to churn. The platform trembled, trembled beneath her feet. Her father stood out, even in the crowd. When he spotted her, she saw the irritation that transformed his features, reshaped his expression into one of grim determination. He was a tall man, at least six foot two, but he'd been bent by the Great War. Or at least that was what Isabel remembered hearing once. His broad shoulders sloped downward, as if posture were too much to think about with all that was on his mind. His thinning hair was gray and unkempt. He had a broad, flattened nose like a spatula, and lips as thin as an afterthought. On this hot summer day, he wore a crinkled white shirt, with sleeves rolled up, a tie hung loosely around, around his fraying collar and the corduroy pants were in need of laundering. She tried to look mature. Perhaps that was what he wanted of her. Isabel. She clutched her suitcase handle on both hands. Papa. Kicked out of another one. She nodded, swallowing hard. How will we find another school in these times? That was her opening. I want to live with you, Papa. With me? He seemed irritated and surprised. But wasn't it normal for a girl to want to live with her father? She took a step toward him. I could work in the bookstore. I won't get on In Your Way. She drew in a sharp breath, waiting. Sound amplified suddenly. She heard people walking, the platforms groaning beneath them, pigeons flapping their wings overhead, a baby crying. Of course, Isabel, come home. Her father sighed in disgust and walked away. Well, he said, looking back, are you coming? Um, also, side note, so when he, the text says, of course, Isabel, come home, but it's like in italics, like it was like, you know, her thought and stuff. He didn't actually say that. He just said, well, are you coming? Isabel lay on a blanket in the sweet-smelling grass, a book open in front of her. Somewhere nearby, a a bee buzzed at a blossom. It sounded like a tiny motorcycle amid all this quiet. It was a blisteringly hot day, a week after she'd come home to Paris. Well, not home. She knew her father was still plotting to be rid of her, but she didn't want to think about that on such a gorgeous day in the air that smelled of cherries and sweet green grass. You read too much, Christophe said, chewing on a stalk of hay. What is that, a romantic novel? She rolled toward him, snapping the book shut. It was about Edith Cavell, a nurse in the Great War, a hero. I could be a war hero, Christoph. He laughed. A girl? A hero? Absurd. Isabel got to her feet quickly, yanking up her hat and white kid gloves. Don't be mad, he said, grinning up at her. I'm just tired of the war talk, and it's a fact that women are useless in a war. Your job is to wait for our return. He he propped his cheek in one hand and peered up at her through the mop of blonde hair that fell across his eyes. In his yachting-style blazer and wide-legged white pants, he looked exactly like he, what he was, a privileged university student who was unused to work of any kind. Not many not many students his age had volunteered to leave university and joined his army. Not Christoph. Isabel hiked up the hill and through the orchard, out to the grassy knoll where his open-tapped panhard was parked. She was already behind the wheel with the engine running when Christoph appeared, a sheen of sweat on his conventionally handsome face empty picnic basket hanging from his arm. Just throw the stuff in the back," she said with a bright smile. "You're not driving. It appears that I am. Now get in. It's my automobile, Isabel. Well, to be precise, and I know how important the facts are to you, Christoph. It's your mother's automobile, and I believe a woman should drive a woman's automobile." Isabel tried not to smile when he rolled his eyes and muttered, "Fine," and leaned over to place the basket behind Isabel's seat. Then, moving slowly enough to make his point, he walked around the front of the automobile and took his place in the seat beside her. He had no sooner clicked the door shut when she put the automobile in gear and stomped on the gas. The automobile hesitated for a second, then lurched forward, spewing dust and smoke as it gathered speed. Mon dieu, Isabel, slow down! She held onto her flapping straw hat with one hand and clutched the steering wheel with the other. She barely slowed as she passed other motorists. Mon dieu, slow down! he said again. Certainly, he must know that she had no intention of complying. A woman can go to war these days, Isabel said when the Paris traffic finally forced her to slow down. I could be an ambulance driver, maybe. Or I could work on breaking secret codes or charming the enemy into telling me a secret location or plan. Remember that game? War is not a game, Isabel. I believe I know that, Christophe. But if it does come, I can help. That's all I'm saying. On the Rue de la Morale de L'amereld Colony, she had to slam on the brakes to avoid hitting a lorry. A convoy from the com- comédier François was pulling out of the Louvre Museum. In fact, there, was, there were lorries everywhere and uniformed gendarmes directing traffic. Sandbags were piled up around several buildings and monuments to protect from attack. Of course, there had been none since France joined the war. Why were there so many French policemen out here? Odd, Isabel murmured, mumbled, frowning. Christophe craned his neck to see what was going on. They're moving treasures out of the Louvre, he said. Isabel saw a break in traffic and sped up. In no time, she had pulled up in front of her father's bookshop and parked. She waved goodbye to Christophe and ducked into the shop. It was long and narrow, lined from floor to ceiling with books. Over the years, her father had tried to increase his inventory by building freestanding bookcases. The result of his improvements was the creation of a labyrinth. The stacks led one this way, and that deeper and deeper within. At the very back were the books for tourists. Some stacks were well lit, some in shadows. There weren't enough outlets to illuminate every nook and cranny, but her father knew every title on every shelf. You're late, he said, looking up from his desk in the back. He was doing something with a printing press, probably making one of his books of poetry, which no one ever purchased. His blunt-tipped fingers were stained blue. I suppose boys are more important to you than employment. She slid onto the stool behind the cash register. In the week she would lived with her father, she'd made it a point not to argue back, although acquiescing nodded at her. She tapped her foot impatiently. Words, phrases, excuses clamored to be spoken aloud. It was hard enough to tell him how she felt, but she knew how badly he wanted her gone, so she held her tongue. Do you hear that? he said sometime later. Had you fallen asleep? Isabel sat up. She hadn't heard her father approach, but he was beside her now, frowning. There was a strange sound in the bookshop, to be sure. Dust fell from the ceiling. The bookcases clattered slightly, making a sound like chattering teeth. Shadows passed in front of the leaded glass display windows at the entrance. Hundreds of them. People. So many of them. Papa went to the door. Isabel slid off her stool and followed him. As he opened the door, she saw a crowd running down the street, filling the sidewalks. What in the world? Papa muttered. Isabel pushed past Papa, elbowed her way into the crowd. A man bumped into her so hard she stumbled, and he didn't even apologize. More people rushed past them. What is it? What's happened? She asked a florid, wheezing man who was trying to break free from the crowd. The Germans are coming into Paris, he said. We must leave. I was in the Great War. I know. Isabel scoffed. Germans in Paris? Impossible. He ran away, bobbing from side to side, weaving, his hands fisting and unfisting at his sides. We must get home, Papa said, locking the bookshop door. It can't be true, she said. The worst can always be true, Papa said grimly. Stay close to me, he added, moving into the crowd. Isabel had never seen such a panic. All up and down the street, lights were coming on, automobiles were starting, doors were slamming shut. People screamed to one another and reached out, trying to stay connected on the melee. Isabel stayed close to her father. The pandemonium in the streets slowed them down. The metro tunnels were too crowded to navigate, so they had to walk all the way. It was nearing nightfall when they finally made it home. At their apartment building, it took her father two tries to open the main door. His hands were shaking so badly. Once in, they ignored the rickety cage elevator and hurried up five flights of stairs to their apartment. Don't turn on the lights, her father said harshly as he opened the door. Isabel followed him into the living room and went past him to the window, where she lifted the blackout shade, peering out. From far away came a droning sound. As it grew louder, the window rattled, sounding like ice in a glass. She heard a high whistling sound only seconds before she saw the black flotilla in the sky, like birds flying in formation. Aeroplanes. Boches, her father whispered. Germans. German aeroplanes flying over Paris. The whistling sound increased, became like a woman's scream, and then somewhere, maybe in the second arrondissement, she thought. A bomb exploded in a flash of eerie bright light and something caught fire. The air raid siren sounded. Her father run to the curtain shut and led her out to the apartment down the stairs. Their neighbors were all coming down the same thing. We're all doing the same thing, carrying coats and babies and pets down the stairs to the lobby and then down the narrow, twisting stone stairs that led to the cellar. In the dark, they sat together, crowded and close. There, there air stink of mildew and body odor and fear. That was the sharpest scent of all. The bombing went on and on and on, screeching and droning, the cellar walls vibrating around them, dust fell from the ceiling. A baby started crying and couldn't be soothed. Shut that child up, please, someone snapped. I'm trying, monsieur. He is scared. So are we all. After what fell like an eternity, silence fell. It was almost worse than the noise. What if Paris was left? By the time that all clear sounded, Isabel felt numb. Isabel. She wanted her father to reach out to her to take her hand and comfort her, even if it was just for a moment, but he turned away from her and headed up the dark, twisting basement stairs. In their apartment, Isabel went immediately to the window, peering past the shade to look for the Eiffel Tower. It was still there, rising above a wall of thick black smoke. "'Don't stand by the windows,' he said. She turned slowly. The only light in the room was from his torch, a a sickly yellow thread in the dark. "'Paris won't fall,' she said. He said nothing, frowned. She wondered if he were thinking of the Great War and what he'd seen in the trenches. Perhaps his injury was hurting again, aching in sympathy with the sound of falling bombs and hissing flames. "'Go to bed, Isabel.' How can I possibly sleep at a time like this? He said. You will learn that a lot of things are possible. Chapter 5 They had been lied to by their government. They had been assured time and time again that the Maginot Line would keep the Germans out of France. Lies. Neither concrete and steel nor French soldiers soldiers could stop Hitler's march, and the government had run from Paris like thieves in the night. It was said that they were in tours, Strategizing. But what could a strategy do Strategy do when Paris was to be overrun by the enemy? Are you ready? I am not going, Papa. I have told you this. She had dressed for travel, as he'd asked, in a red polka dot summer dress and low heels. We will not have this conversation again, Isabel. The Humberts will be here to soon to pick you up. They will take you as far as tours. From there, I leave it to your ingenuity to get to your sister's house. Lord knows you have always been adept at running away. So you throw me out again? Enough of this, Isabel. Your sister's husband is at the front. She is alone with her daughter. You he will do as I say. You will leave Paris. Did he know how this hurt her? Did he care? You've never cared about Vian or me, and she doesn't want me any more than you do. You're going," he said. "I want to stay and fight, Papa," to be like Edith Cabell. Cabell. I think it's Cabell. He rolled his eyes. "You remember how she died, executed by the Germans. Papa, please." "Enough. I've seen what they can do, Isabel. You have not. If it's that bad, you should come with me." And leave the apartment and bookshop to them? He grabbed her by the hand and dragged her out of the apartment and down the stairs. Her straw hat and ballast bega- banging into the wall, her breath coming in gasps. At last, he opened the door and pulled at her and out into the avenue de la Bordon-oie. la Bordon-oie. Chaos, dust, crowds. The street was a living, breathing dragon of humanity, inching forward, wheezing dirt, honking horns, people yelling for help, babies crying, and the smell of sweat heavy in the air. Automobiles clogged the area, each burdened beneath boxes and bags. People had taken whatever they could find, carts and bicycles and even children's wagons. Those who couldn't find or afford the patrol or an automobile or a bicycle walked. Hundreds, thousands of women and children held hands, shuffled forward, carrying as much as they could hold. Suitcases, picnic baskets, pets. Already the very old and very young were falling behind. Isabel didn't want to join this hopeless, helpless crowd of women and children and old people. While the young men were away, dying for them at the front, their families were leaving. Heading south or west, although me- really, what made any of them think it would be safer there? Hitler's troops had already invaded Pol- Poland and Belgium and Czechoslovakia. The crowd engulfed them. A woman ran to Isabel, mumbled pardon, and kept walking. Isabel followed her father. I can be useful, please. I'll be a nurse or drive an ambulance. I can roll bandages or even stitch up a wound. Beside them, a horn, ah-u-gobbed, ah gobbed I guess that's a horn noise. Her father looked past her, and she saw the relief that lifted her countenance. Isabel recognized that look. It meant he was getting rid of her, again. They are here, he said. Don't send me away, she said, please. He maneuvered her through the crowd to where a dusty black automobile was parked. It had a saggy stained mattress strapped to its roof, along with a set of fishing poles and a rabbit cage with the rabbit still inside. The boot was open, but also strapped down. Inside, she saw a jumble of baskets and suitcases and lamps. Inside the automobile, Monsieur Humbert's pale, plump fingers clutched the steering wheel as if the automobile were a horse that might bolt any second. He was a pudgy man who spent his days in the butcher shop near papa's bookstore. His wife Patricia was a sturdy woman who had held who had heavy who had the heavy jowled 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 J O W L E D peasant look one saw so often in the country. She was smoking a cigarette and staring out the window as if she couldn't believe what she was seeing. Monsieur Herbert Humbert rolled down the window and poked his face into the opening. Hello, Julian. She is ready? Papa nodded. She is ready. Merci, Edward. Patricia leaned over to talk to Papa through the open window. We were only going as far as Orleans, and she has to pay her share of petrol, of course. Of course. Isabel couldn't leave. It was cowardly. Wrong. Papa. Au revoir, he said firmly enough to remind her that she had no choice. He nodded toward the car, and she mumbled numbly toward it. She opened the back door and saw three small, dirty girls lying together, eating crackers and drinking from bottles and playing with dolls. The last thing she wanted was to join them, but she pushed her way in, made a space for herself among these strangers that smelled vaguely of cheese and sausage, and closed the door. Twisting around in her seat, she stared at her father through the back window. His face held her gaze. She saw his mouth bend ever so slightly downward. It was the only hint that that he saw her. The crowd surged around him like water around a rock. Until all she could see was the wall of bedraggled strangers strangers stringers. Oh my goodness bedraggled strangers coming up behind the car. Isabel faced forward in her seat again. Out her window a young woman stared back at her, wild eyes, hair a bird's nest, an infant suckling at her breast. The car moved slowly, sometimes inching forward, sometimes stopped for long periods of time. Isabel watched her countrymen, country woman, shovel past her, looking dazed and terrified and confused. Every now and then, one of them would pound on the car bonnet or boot, begging for something. They kept the windows rolled up, even though the heat in the car was stifling. At first, she was sad to be leaving, and then her anger bloomed, growing hotter even than the air in the back of the stinking car. She was so tired of being considered disposable. First, her papa had abandoned her, and then Vianne had pushed her aside. She had closed her eyes to hide tears, but couldn't she couldn't suppress. In the darkness that smelled of sausage and sweat and smoke, with the children arguing beside her, she remembered the first time she'd been sent away. The long train ride. Isabel stepped in beside Vianne, who did nothing but sniff and cry and pretend to sleep. And then Madame, looking down at her copper pipe of a nose, saying, "'There will, they will be no trouble.'" Although she'd been young, only four, Isabel thought she learned what alone meant. But she'd been wrong. In the three years she lived at Le Hardin, she'd at least had a sister, and if Vianne was never around, even if Vianne was never around. Isabel remembered peering down from the upstairs window, watching Vianne and her friends from a distance, praying to be remembered, to be invited, and when Vianne had married Antoine and he and fired Madame Doom, not her real name, of course, but certainly the truth, Isabel had believed she was part of the family, but not for long. When Vianne had her miscarriage, it was instantly goodbye, Isabel. Three weeks later, at seven, she'd been in her first boarding school. That was when she really learned about alone. You, Isabel, did you bring food? Patricia asked. She was turned around in her seat, peering at Isabel. No. Wine? I brought money and clothes and books. Books, Patricia said dismissively, and turned back around. That should help. Isabel looked out the window again. What other mistakes had she already made? Hours passed. The automobile made its slow, agonizing way south. Isabel was grateful for the dust. It coated the window and obscured the terrible, depressing scene. People everywhere. In front of them, behind them, beside them. So thick was the crowd that the automobile could only inch forward in fits and starts. It was like driving through a swarm of bees that pulled apart for a second and then swarmed again. The sun was punishingly hot. It turned the smelly automobile interior into an oven and beat down the women outside who were shuffling toward what. No one knew what exactly was happening behind them or where safety lay ahead. The car lurched forward and stopped hard. Isabel hit the seat in front of her. The children immediately started to cry for their mother. Merde, merde. Oh, that's shit again. Monsieur Humbert muttered. Monsieur Humbert, Patricia said primly, primly, primly. The children. An old woman pounded on the car's bonnet as she shuffled past. That's it, then, Madam Humbert, he said. We are out of petrol. Is that also how you say that? It's like, I know it's like petroleum. Is it petrol? Petrol? Patrol? I don't know. Patricia looked like a landed fish. What? I stopped at every chance along the way. You know I did. We have no more patrol and there's none to be had. But, well, what are we to do? We'll find a place to stay. Perhaps I convince my brother to come fetch us. Humbert opened his automobile door, being careful not to hit anyone ambling past, and stepped out onto the dusty, dirt road. See, there and to pay is not that far ahead. We'll get a room and a meal, and it will all look better in the morning. Isabel sat upright. Surely she had fallen asleep and missed something. Were they simply going to abandon the automobile? You think we can walk to tours? Patricia turned around her seat. She looked as drained and hot as Isabel felt. Perhaps one of your books can help you. Certainly they were a smarter choice than bread or water. Come, girls, out of the automobile. Isabel reached down for her valise at her feet. It was wedged in tightly and required some effort to extricate. With a growl of determination, she finally yanked it free, and opened the car door, and stepped out. She was immediately surrounded by people, pushed and shoved and cursed at. Someone tried to yank her suitcase out of her grasp. She fought for it and hung on. As she clutched it to her body, a woman walked past her, pushing a bicycle laden with possessions. The woman stared at Isabel hopelessly, her dark eyes revealing exhaustion. Someone else bumped at Isabel. She stumbled forward and almost fell. Only the thickest of bodies in front of her saved her from going to her knees in the dust and dirt. Sure, the person behind her apologized, and Isabel was about to respond when she remembered the Humberts. She shoved her way around to the other side of the car, crying out, Monsieur Humbert! There was no answer, just the ceaseless pounding of feet on the road. She called out Patricia's name, but her cry was lost in the thud of so many feet, so many tires crunching on the dirt. People bumped past her, pushed, p- pushed past her. If she fell to her knees, she'd be trampled and die here. "'alone in the throng of her countrymen. clutching the smooth leather handle of her valise, "'she joined the march toward Entenfeuil. "'She was still walking hours later when night fell. "'Her feet ached. "'A blister burned with every step. "'Hunger walked beside her, "'poking her insistently with a sharp little elbow. "'But what could she do about it? "'She'd packed for a visit with her sister, "'not an endless exodus. "'She had her favorite copy of Madame Bovary "'and the book everyone was reading, "'A tant d'un importe l'event, "'and some clothes, no food or water.' She'd expected that this whole journey would last a few hours, certainly not that she would be walking to Caraveau. Okay, I looked it up. Um, Gone with the Wind is what she was reading, just in French. At the top of a small rise, she came to a stop. Moonlight revealed thousands of people walking beside her, in front of her, behind her, jostling her, bumping into her, shoving her forward until then she had no choice but to stumble along with them. Hundreds more had chosen this hillside as a resting place. Women and children were camped along the side of the road in fields and gutters and gullies. The dirt road was littered with broken-down automobiles and belongings, forgotten, discarded, stepped on, too heavy to carry. Women and children lay entangled in the grass or beneath trees or alongside ditches, asleep, their arms coiled around each other. Isabel came to an exhausted halt on the outskirts of Entimpe. The crowd spilled out in front of her, stumbling onto the road to town, and she knew. There would be nowhere to stay in Entimpe and nothing to eat. The refugees who had arrived before her would have moved through a town like locusts. Buying every foodstuff on the shelves. There wouldn't be a room available. Her money would do her no good. So what should she do? Head southwest toward Tours and Carreville. What else? As a girl, she'd study maps of this region in her quest to return to Paris. She knew this landscape. If only she could think. She peeled away from the crowd, headed toward the collection of moonlit gray stone buildings in the distance, and picked her way carefully through the valley. All around her, people were seated in the grass or sleeping beneath blankets. She could hear them, moving, whispering. Hundreds of them. Thousands. On the far side of the field, she found a trail that ran, ran south along a low stone wall. Turning into it, she found herself alone. She paused, letting her feel the fuel of that settle through her calm her. Then she began walking again. After a mile or so, the trail led her into a copse of spindly trees. She was deep in the woods, trying not to focus on the pain in her toe, the ache in her stomach, the dryness in her throat when she smelled smoke, and roasting meat. Hunger stripped her resolve and made her careless. She saw the orange glow of the fire and moved toward it. At the last minute, she realized her danger and stopped. A twig snapped beneath her foot. You may as well come over, said a male voice. You move like an elephant through the woods. Isabel froze. She knew she'd been stupid. There could be danger here for a girl alone. If I wanted you dead, you'd be dead. That was certainly true. He could have come upon her in the dark and slit her throat. She'd been paying attention to nothing except the gnawing in her empty stomach and the aroma of roasting meat. You can trust me. She stared into the darkness, trying to make him out couldn't you would say that if the opposite were true too a laugh we and now come here i have a rabbit on the fire she followed the glow of firelight over rocky goalie and uphill the tree trunks around her looked silver in the moonlight she moved lightly ready to run in an instant at the last tree between her and the fire she stopped a young man sat by the fire leaning back against a rough trunk one leg thrust forward one bent at the knee he was probably only a few years older than Isabel. It was hard to see him well in the orange glow. He had long stringy black hair that looked unfamiliar with a comb or soap and clothes so tattered and patched that she was reminded of the war refugees who'd so recently shoveled through Paris, hoarding cigarettes and bits of paper and empty bottles, begging for change or help. He had the pale, wholesome, unwholesome look of someone who never knew where his next meal was coming from, and yet he was offering her food. I hope you are a gentleman, she said from her place in the darkness. He laughed. I'm sure you do. She stepped into the light cast by the fire. Sit, he said. She sat across from him in the grass. He leaned around the fire and handed her a bottle of wine. She took a long drink. So long, she. he laughed as she handed him back the bottle and wiped wine from her chin. What a pretty drunkard you are. She had no idea how to answer that. He smiled. Gaetan Bois. My friends call me Gate. That's G-A-E with two dots on top. T. I'm gonna go with Gate. Isabel Rosignal. Ah, a nightingale. She shrugged. It was hardly a new observation. Her surname meant Nightingale. Maman had called Vianne and Isabel her nightingales as she kissed them goodnight. It was one of Isabel's few memories of her. Why are you leaving Paris? A man like you should stay and fight. They opened the prison. Apparently, it is better to have us fight for France than sit behind bars when the Germans storm through. You were in prison? Does that scare you? No, it's just unexpected. You should be scared, he said, pushing the stringy hair out of his eyes. Anyway, you're safe enough with me. I have other things on my mind. I'm going to check on my mom and sister and then find a regiment to join. I'll kill as many of those bastards as I can. You're lucky, she said with a sigh. Why was it so easy for men in the world to do as they wanted and so difficult for women? Come with me. Isabel knew better than to believe him. You only ask because I'm pretty and you think I'll end up in your bed if I stay, she said. He stared across the fire at her. It cracked and hissed as fat dripped onto the flames. He took a long drink of wine and handed the bottle back to her. Near the flames, their heads touched. Their hands, not heads. That doesn't really make sense But the scene. <laughs> Near the flames, their hands touched. The barest brushing of skin on skin. I could have you in my bed right now if that's what I wanted. Not willingly, she said, swallowing hard, unable to look away. Willingly, he said, in a way that made her skin prickle and made breathing difficult. But that's not what I meant. Or what I said. I asked you to come with me to fight. Isabel felt something so new she couldn't quite grasp it. She knew she was beautiful. It was simply a fact to her. People said it whenever they met her. She saw how men gazed at her with unabashed desire, remarking on her hair or green eyes or plump lips how they looked at her breasts. She saw her beauty reflected in women's eyes too, girls at school who didn't want her to stand too near the boys they liked and judged her to be arrogant before she would even spoken a word. Beauty was just another way to discount her, to not see her. She had grown used to getting attention in other ways, and she wasn't a complete innocent when it came to passion either. Hadn't the good sisters of St. Francis expelled her for kissing a boy during Mass? But this felt different. He saw her beauty, even in the half-light, she could tell, but he looked past it. Either that, or he was smart enough to see that she wanted to offer more to the world than a pretty face. I could do something that matters, she said quietly. Sorry, I said that really loudly. <laughs> sorry, I'll, here. I'll try again. <laughs> okay, oh, got it here. Okay, sorry, I'm saying it. I'm just getting it fight together. <laughs> I could do something that matters, she said quietly. Of course you could. I could teach you to use a gun and a knife. I need to go to Caribo and make my sister, make sure my sister is well. Her husband is at the front. He gazed at her across the fire, his expression intent. We will, sister, you will see your sister in Caribo and my mother in Poitiers, and then we will be off to join the war. He made it sound like such an adventure, no different from running off to join the circus, as if they would see men who swallowed swords and fat women with beards along the way. It was what she'd been looking for all of her life. A plan, then, she said, unable to hide her smile. Chapter 6. The next morning, Isabel blinked awake to see sunlight gilding the leaves rustling overhead. She sat up, resmoothing her skirt that had hiked up in her sleep, revealing lacy white garters and ruined silk stockings. Don't do that on my account. Isabel glanced to her left and saw Gayton coming toward her. For the first time, she saw him clearly. He was lanky, wiry as an apostrophe mark, and dressed in clothes that appeared to have come from a beggar's bin. Beneath a fraying cap "'His face was scruffy and sharp, unshaven. "'He had a wide brow and a pronounced chin "'and deep-set gray eyes that were heavily lashed. "'The look in those eyes was as sharp as the point of his chin "'and revealed a kind of clarified hunger. "'Last night, she thought it was how he looked at her. "'Now she saw that it was how he looked at the world. "'He didn't scare her, not at all. "'Isabel was not like her sister, Vianne, "'who was given to fear and anxiety. "'But neither was Isabel a fool. "'If she was going to travel with this man, "'she had better get a few things straight. "'So,' she said, "'prison.' He stared at her, raised a black eyebrow, as if to say, "'Scared yet?' "'A girl like you wouldn't know anything about it. "'I could tell you I was Jean Valjean sort of stay, "'it was a Jean Valjean sort of stay, "'and you would think it was romantic. "'It was the kind of thing she heard all the time. "'It circled back to her looks, as most denied comments did. "'Surely a pretty blonde girl had to be shallow and dim-witted. "'Were you stealing food to feed your family?' "'He grinned crookedly. "'It gave him a lopsided look, with one side of a smile "'hiking up farther than the other. "'No. "'Are you dangerous?' It depends. What do you think of communists? Ah, so you were a political prisoner. Something like that. But like I said, a nice girl like you wouldn't know anything about survival. You'd be surprised at things I know, Gaten. There is more than one kind of prison. Is there, pretty girl? What do you know about it? What was your crime? I took things that didn't belong to me. Is that enough of an answer? Thief. And you got caught? Obviously. That isn't exactly comforting, Gaten. Were you careless? Gaten, he said, moving toward her. I haven't decided if we're friends yet. He touched her hair, let a few strands coil around his dirty finger. We're friends. Bank on it. Now let's go. When he reached for her hand, it occurred to her to refuse him, but she didn't. They walked out of the forest and back onto the road, merging once again into the crowd, which opened just enough to let them in and close around them. Isabel hung on to Gaten with one hand and held her suitcase in the other. They walked for miles. Automobiles died around them. Cartwheels broke. Horses stopped and couldn't be made to move again. Isabel felt herself becoming listless and dull, exhausted by, exhausted by heat and dust and thirst. A woman limped along beside her, crying, her tears black with dirt and grit, and then that woman was replaced by an older woman in a fur coat who was sweating profusely and seemed to be wearing every piece of jewelry she owned. The sun grew stronger, became stiflingly, staggeringly hot. Children whined, women whimpered. The acrid, stuffy scent of body odor and sweat filled the air, but Isabella had grown so used to it that she barely noticed other people's smell or her own. It was almost three o'clock, the hottest part of the day, when they saw a regiment of French shoulder- soldiers walking alongside them, dragging their rifles. The soldiers moved in a disorganized way, not in formation, not smartly. A tank rumbled beside them, crunching over belongings left in the road. On its several way faced French shoulders, soldiers, sat slumped, their heads hung low. Isabel pulled free of Gayton and stumbled through the crowd, elbowing her way to the regiment. You're going the wrong way, she screamed, surprising to hear how hoarse her voice was. Gayton pounced on a soldier, on a soldier, shoved him back so hard he stumbled and crashed into a slow moving tank. Who is fighting for France? The bleary eyed soldier, soldier shook his head. No one. In a glint of silver, Isabel saw the knife Gayton held to the man's throat. The soldier's gaze narrowed. Go ahead. Do it. Kill me. Isabel pulled Gayton away. In his eyes, she saw a rage so deep it scared her. How could he could do it? He could kill this man by sliding his throat. And she thought, they opened the prisons. Was he worse than a thief? Gate, she said. Her voice got through to him. He shook his head as if to clear it and lower the knife. Who was fighting for us, he said, bitterly, cutting, coughing at the dust. We will be, she said, soon. Behind her, an automobile honked its horn. Ah, oh, Isabel ignored it. Automobiles were no better than walking anymore. The few that were still running were moving only at the whim of the people around them, like flotsam in the reeds of a muddy river. Come on. She pulled him away from the de- demoralized regiment. They walked on, still holding hands, but as the hours passed, Isabel noticed a change in Gaten. He rarely spoke and didn't smile. At each town, the crowd thinned. People stumbled into Ardenne, Saran, and Orleans. Their eyes alight with desperation as they reached into, into handbags and pockets and wallets for money they hoped to be able to spend. Still, Isabel and Gayton kept going. They walked all day and fell into exhausted sleep in the dark and woke again to walk the next day. By their third day, Isabel was numb with exhaustion. Oozing red blisters had formed between most of her toes and on the balls of her feet, and every step was painful. Dehydration gave her a terrible pounding headache and a hunger knot at her empty stomach. "'Dust clogged her throat and eyes and made her cough constantly. "'She stumbled past a freshly dug grave on the side of the road, "'marked a crudely hammered-together wooden cross. "'Her shoe caught on something, a dead cat, "'and she staggered forward, almost falling to her knees. "'Gayton studied her. "'She clung to his hand, remained stubbornly upright. "'How much later was it that she had heard something? "'An hour? A day? Bees. "'They buzzed around her head. She batted them away. "'She licked her dried lips and thought of pleasant days in the garden "'with bees buzzing about.' No, not bees. She knew that sound. She stopped frowning. Her thoughts were addled. What had she been trying to remember? The droning grew louder, filling the air, and then the airplanes appeared, six or seven of them, looking like small crucifixes against the blue and cloudless sky. Isabel tempted a hand over her eyes, watching the airplanes fly closer, lower. Someone yelled, it's the Boches. In the distance, a stone bridge exploded in a spray of fire and stone and smoke. The airplanes dropped lower over the crowd. Gaten threw Isabel to the ground and covered her body with his. This world became pure sound. The roar of the airplane engines, the rat tat tat of machine gun fire, the beat of her heart, people screaming. Bullets ate up the grass and rose. People screamed and cried out. Isabel saw a woman fly high into the air like a rag doll, and hit the ground in a heap. Trees snapped in half and fell over. People yelled. Flames burst into existence. Smoke filled the air. And then, quiet. Gaten rolled off her. Are you all right? He asked. She pushed the the hair from her eyes and sat up. There were mangled bodies everywhere, and fires, and billowing black smoke. People were screaming, crying, dying. An old man moaned, Help me. Isabel crawled to him on her hands and knees, realizing as she got close that the ground was marshy with his blood. A stomach wound gaped through his ripped shirt, and trails bulged out of the torn flesh. Maybe there's a doctor, was all she could think of to say. And then she heard it again, the droning. They're coming back. Gain pulled her to her feet. She almost slipped in the blood-soaked grass. Not far away, a bomb hit, exploding into fire. Isabel saw a toddler in soiled nappies, standing by a dead woman, crying. She stumbled toward the toddler. Gayton yanked her sideways. I have to help. Your dying won't help that kid, he growled, pulling her so hard it hurt. She stumbled along beside him in a daze. They dodged discarded automobiles and bodies, most of which were ripped beyond repair. Bleeding bones sticking out through clothes. At the edge of town, Gayton pulled Isabel into a small stone church. Others were already there, crouching in corners, hiding amid the pews, hugging their loved ones close. Aeroplanes roared overhead, accompanied by the stuttering shriek of machine guns. The stained glass window shattered, bits of gla- colored glass clattered to the floor, slicing through skin on the way down. Timbers cracked, dust and stones fell. Bullets ran across the church, nailing arms and legs to the floor. The altar exploded. Gain said something to her, and she answered, or she thought she did, but she wasn't sure. And before she could figure it out, another bomb whistled, fell and the roof over her head exploded. Chapter 7 The Ecole Elementaire was not a big school by city standards, but it was spacious and well laid out, plenty large enough for the children of the commune of Caraville. Before its life as a school, the building had been stables for a rich landowner, and thus its C-shaped design. The central courtyard had been a gathering place for carriages and tradesmen. It boasted graystone walls, bright blue shutters, and wooden floors. The manor house to which it had once been aligned had been bombed in a great war and never rebuilt. Like so many schools in the small towns in France, it stood on the far edge of town. Anne was in her classroom behind her desk, staring out at the shining children's faces in front of her, dabbing her upper lip with her wrinkled handkerchief. On the floor by each child's desk was the obligatory gas mask. Children now carried them everywhere. The open windows and thick stone walls helped to keep the sun at bay, but still the heat was stifling. Lord knew it was hard enough to concentrate without the added burden of the heat. The news from Paris was terrible, terrifying. All anyone could talk about was the gloomy future and the shocking present. Germans in Paris. Maginot line broke. French soldiers dead in trenches and running from the front. For the last three nights, the telephone call from her father, she hadn't slept. Isabel was God knew where between Paris and Carabao, and there had been no word from Antoine. Who wants to conjugate the verb courier for me? She asked tiredly. Shouldn't we be learning German? Vianne realized what she'd just been asked. The students were interested now, sitting upright, their eyes bright. Pardon? She said, clearing her throat, buying time. We should be learning German, not French. It was young Gilles Fournier, the butcher's son. His father and all three of his older brothers had gone off to the war, leaving only him and his mother to run the family's butcher shop. In shooting, Francois agreed, nodding his head. My mom my maman says we, need, we, we we will need, need to know how to shoot Germans, too. My grandmother says we sh- should all just leave, said Claire. She remembers the last war, and she says we were fools for staying. The Germans won't cross the border. Will they, Madame Moriac? In the front row center, Sophie st- sat forward in her seat, her hands clasped atop the wooden desk, her eyes wide. She had been as upset by the rumors as Vianne. The child had cried herself to sleep two nights in a row, worrying over her father. Now, Bibi came to school with her. Sarah sat in the desk beside her friends, looking equally fearful. It was all right. It is all right to be afraid, Vianne said, moving toward them. It was what she said to Sophie last night and to herself, but the words rang hollow. I'm not afraid, Gil said. I've got a knife. I'll kill any dirty boches who show up in Caravel." Sarah's eyes widened. They're coming here? No, Vianne said. The denial didn't come easily. Her own fear caught at the word, stretched it out. The French soldiers. So that was really. No. But, whatever. The French soldiers, your fathers and uncles and brothers, are the bravest men in the world. I'm sure they are fighting for Paris and Tours and Orleans even as we speak. But Paris is overrun, Gilles said. What happened to the French soldiers at the front? In wars, there are battles and skirmishes, losses along the way. But our men will never let the Germans win. We will never give up. She moved closer to her students. But we have a part to play, too, those of us left behind. We have to be brave and strong, too, and not believe the worst. We have to keep on the lo- our lives so our fathers and brothers and husbands have lives to come home to. We? But what about Tante Isabel? Sophie asked. Grand said she had, should have been here by now. My cousin ran from Paris, too, Francois said. He has not arrived either. My uncle says it is ba- bad on the roads. My bell rang, and students popped from their seats like springs. In an instant, the war, the airplanes, and fear were forgotten. They were eight- and nine-year-olds freed at the end of a summer school day, and they acted like it, yelling, laughing, talking all at once, pushing one another aside, running for the door. Vianne was thankful for the bell. She was a teacher, for God's sake. What did she know to say about dangers such as these? How could she assuage a child's fear when her own was straining on the leash? She busied herself with ordinary tasks gathering up the detritus that 16 children left behind, banging chalk from the soft erasers, putting books away. When everything was as it should be, she put her papers and pencils into her own leather satchel and took her handbag out of the desk's bottom drawer. Then she put on her straw hat, pinned it in place, and left her classroom. She walked down the quiet hallways, waving to colleagues who were still in their classrooms. Several, Several of the rooms were closed up now that the male teachers had been mobilized. At Rachel's classroom, she paused, watching as Rachel put her son in his pram and wheeled it toward the door. Rachel had been planning to take this term off from teaching to stay home with Ari, but the war had changed all at that. Now, she had no choice but to bring the baby to work with her. "'You look like I feel,' Beanne said as her friend neared. Rachel's dark hair had responded to the humidity and doubled in size. "'That can't be a compliment, but I'm desperate, so I'm taking it as one. "'You have chalk on your cheek, by the way.' Vianne wiped her cheek absently and leaned over the pram. The baby was sleeping soundly. "'How's he doing?' For a ten-month-old who was supposed to be at home with his mama and instead gallivanting around town beneath enemy airplanes and listening to ten-year-olds doing the shriek all day? Fine. She smiled and pushed a damp ringlet from her face as they headed down the corridor. Do I sound better? No more than the rest of us. Ha, bitterness would do you good. All that smiling and pretending of yours would give me hives. Rachel bumped the pram down the three stone steps and onto the walkway that led to the grassy play area that had once been an exercise arena for horses and a delivery area for tradesmen. A 400-year-old stone fountain gurgled and and dripped water in the center of the yard. Come on, girls, Rachel called out to Sophie and Sarah, who were sitting together on a park bench. The girls responded immediately and fell into step ahead of the woman, chattering constantly. Their heads cocked together, their hands clasped. A second generation of best friends. They turned into an alleyway and came out on Rue Victor Hugo. Right in front of a bistro where old men sat in ironwork chairs, drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and talking politics. Ahead of them, Vianne saw a haggard trio woman limping along, their clothes tattered, their faces yellow with dust. Poor women, Rachel said with a sigh. Helene Ruel told me this morning that at least a dozen refugees came to town last night. The stories they bring are not good, but no one embellishes a story like Helena. Ordinarily, Vianne would make a comment about what a gospel Helena was, but she couldn't be glib. According to Papa, Isabel had left Paris days ago, still hadn't arrived at Le Hardin. I'm worried about Isabel, she said. Rachel linked her arm through Vianne's. Do you remember the first time your sister ran away from the boarding school in Leon? Or Lyon? I don't know. She was seven years old. She made it all the way to Amboise, alone, with no money. She spent two nights in the woods and talked her way onto the train. Vianne barely remembered anything of that time except for her own grief. When she'd lost the first baby, she'd fallen into despair. The last lo- the year, Antoine called it. That was how she thought of it, too. When Antoine told her she was taking Isabel to Paris and to Papa, Vianne had been, God help her. Relieved. Was it any surprise that Isabel had run away from the boarding school to which she'd been sent? To this day, Vianne felt an abiding shame to how she had treated her baby sister. She was nine the first time she made it to Paris, Vianne said, trying to find comfort in the familiar story. Isabel was tough and driven and determined. She always had been. If I'm not mistaken, she was expelled two years later for running away from school to see a traveling circus? Or is that when she climbed out of the second floor dormitory window using a bedsheet? Rachel smiled. The point is, Isabel will make it here if that's what she wants. God help anyone who tries to stop her. She will arrive any day, I promise, unless she has met an exiled prince and fallen desperately in love. That is the kind of thing that could happen to her. You see, Rachel Cheese, you feel better already. Now come to my house for lemonade. It's just the thing on a day this hot. After supper, Bianca got Sophie settled into bed and went downstairs. She was too worried to relax. The silence in her house kept reminding her that no one had come to her door. She could not remain still. Regardless of her conversation with Rachel, she couldn't dispel her worry and a terrible sense of foreboding about Isabel. Vianne stood up, sat down, then stood again and walked to the front door, opening it. Outside, the fields lay beneath a purple and pink evening sky. Her yard was a series of familiar shapes, well-tended apple trees stood protectively between the front door and the rose and vine-covered stone wall, beyond which lay the road to town and acres and acres of fields, studded here and there with thickets of narrow-trunked trees. Off to the right was the deeper woods where she and Antoine had often sneaked off to be alone when they were younger. Antoine, Isabel, where were they? Was she at the front? Was she walking from Paris? Don't think about it. She needed to do something. Gardening. Keep your mind on something else. After retrieving her worn gardening gloves and stepping into the boots by the door, she made her way to the garden positioned on a flat patch of land between the shed and the barn. Potatoes, onions, carrots, broccoli, peas, beans, cucumbers, tomatoes, and radishes grew in its carefully tended beds. On the hillside between the garden and the barn were the berries, raspberries and blackberries, and carefully contained rows. She knelt down in the rich black dirt and began pulling weeds. Every summer was usually a time of promise. Certainly, things could go wrong with the most ardent season, but if one remained steady and calm and didn't shirk the all-important duties of weeding and thinning, the plants could be guided and tamed. Vianne always made sure that the beds were precisely organized and tended with a firm yet gentle hand. Even more important than what she gave her garden was what it gave her. In it, she found a sense of calm. She became aware of something wrong slowly, in pieces. First, there was a sound that didn't belong, a vibration, a thudding, and then a murmur. The odors came next, something wholly at odds with her sweet garden cell, something acrid and sharp that made her think of decay. Vianne wiped her forehead, aware that she was smearing black dirt across her skin, and stood up. Tugging her dirty gloves in the gaping hip pockets of her pants, she rose to her feet and moved toward her gate. Before she reached it, a trio of women appeared, as if sculpted, sculpted out of the shadows. They stood clumped together in the road just beyond her gate. An old woman, dressed in rags, held the others close to her. A young woman with a babe in arms and a teenage girl who held an empty birdcage in one hand and a shovel in the other. Each looked glassy-eyed and feverish. The young mother was clearly trembling. Their faces were dripping with sweat. Their eyes were filled with defeat. The old woman held out dirty, empty hands. Can you spare some water? She asked. But even as she asked her the question, she looked unconvinced, beaten. The end opened at the gate. Of course. Would you like to come in? Sit down, perhaps? The old woman shook her head. We are ahead of them. There's nothing for those in the back. Vianne didn't know what that woman meant, but it didn't matter. She could see the wo- the woman were suffering from exhaustion and hunger. Just a moment. She went into the house and packed them some bread and raw carrots and a small bit of cheese, all that she had to spare. She filled a wine bottle with water and returned, offering the, them the provis- provisions. It's not much, she said. It is more than we've had since Tours. The young woman said in a toneless voice, "You were in Tours." Vian asked, "Drink, Sabine." The old woman said, holding the water to the girl's lips. Vian was about to ask Isabel about Isabel when the old woman said sharply, "They're here." The young mother made a moaning sound and tightened her hold on the baby, who was so quiet and his tiny fist so blue that Vian gasped. The baby was dead. Vian knew about the kind of talon grief that wouldn't let go. She had fallen into the fathomless gray that warped a mind and made a mother keep holding on long after hope was gone. Go inside, the old woman said to Vianne. Lock your doors. But the ragged trio bracked away, lurched really, as if Vianne's breath had become noxious. And then she saw the mass of black shapes moving across the field and coming up the road. The smell preceded them. Human sweat and filth and body odor. As they neared, the miasma of black separated, peeled into forms. She saw people on the road and in the fields, walking, limping, coming toward her. Some were pushing bicycles or prams or dragging wagons. Dogs barked, babies cried. There was coughing, throat clearing, whining. They came forward, through the field and up the road, relentlessly moving closer, pushing one another aside, their voices rising. The end couldn't help so many. She rushed into her house and locked the door behind her. Inside, she went from room to room, locking the doors and closing shutters. When she was finished, she stood in the living room, uncertain, her heart pounding. The house began to shake a little. The windows rattled. The shutters thumped against the stone exterior. Dust rained down from the exposed timbers of the ceiling. Someone pounded on the front door. It went on and on and on, fists landing on the front door and hammer blows that made Vianne flinch. Sophie came running down the stairs, clutching Bibi to her chest. Come on! Vianne opened her eyes and Sophie ran into her embrace. Vianne held her daughter close as the onslaught increased. Someone pounded on the side door. The copper pots and pans hanging in the kitchen, clanged together, made a sound like church bells. She heard the high squealing of the outdoor pump. They were getting water. Vianne said to Sophie, wait here one moment. Sit on the divan. Don't leave me! Fian peeled her daughter away and forced her to sit down, taking an iron poker from the side of the fireplace. She crept cautiously up the stairs. From the safety of her bedroom, she peered out the window, careful to remain hidden. There were dozens of people in her yard, mostly women and children, moving like a pack of hungry wolves. Their voices melded into a single, desperate growl. Vianne backed away. What if the doors didn't hold? So many people could break down doors and windows, even walls. Terrified, she went back downstairs, not breathing until she saw Sophie still safe on the divan. Vienne sat down beside her daughter and took her in her arms, letting Sophie curl up as if she were a much little girl. She stroked her daughter's curly hair. A better mother, a stronger mother, would have had a story to tell right now, but Vianne was so afraid that her voice had gone completely. All she could think was an endless, beginningless prayer. Please. She pulled Sophie closer and said, Go to sleep, Sophie. I'm here. Maman, Sophie said, her voice almost lost in the pounding on the door. What if Tante Isabel is out there? answer turned out on Sophie's small, earnest face, covered now in a sheen of sweat and dust. God help her, was all she could think of to say. At the sight of the greystone house, Isabel felt awash in exhaustion. Her shoulders sagged, the blisters on her feet became unbearable. In front of her, Gaten opened the gate. She heard it clatter brokenly and tilt sideways. Leaning into him, she stumbled up to the front door. She knocked twice, winching each, wincing each time her bloody knuckles hit the wood. No one answered. "'She pounded with both of her fists, trying to call out her sister's name, "'but her voice was too hoarse to find any volume. "'She staggered back, almost sinking to her knees in defeat. "'Where can you sleep?' Gayton said, holding her upright with his hand on her waist. "'In the back, the pergola. "'He led her around the house to the backyard. "'In the lush, jasmine-perfumed shadows of the arbor, she collapsed to her knees. "'She hardly noticed that he was gone, and then he was back with some tepid water, "'which she gulped from his cupped hands. "'It wasn't enough.' Her stomach gnarled with hunger, set an ache deep, deep inside of her. Still, when he started to leave again, she reached out for him, mumbled something, a plea not to be left alone, and he sank down beside her, putting out his arm for her to rest her head upon. They lay side by side in the warm dirt, staring up through the black thickets of vines that looped around the timbers and cascaded to the ground. The heady heady aromas of jasmine and blooming roses and rich earth created a beautiful bower. And yet, even here, in this quiet, It was impossible to forget what they'd just been through, and the changes that were so close on their heels. She had seen a a change in gain, watched anger and and impotent rage, rage erase the compassion in his eyes and the smile from his lips. He had hardly spoken since the bombing, and when he did, his voice was clipped and curt. They both knew about war now, about what was coming. You could be safe here with your sister, he said. I don't want to be safe. My sister will not want me. She twisted around to look at him. moonlight came through in lazy patterns, illuminating his eyes, his mouth, leaving his nose and chin in darkness. He had looked different again, all older already, in just these days, careworn, angry. He smelled of sweat and blood and mud and death, but she knew she smelled the same. Have you heard of Edith Cavell? She asked. Do I strike you as an educated man? She thought about that for a moment and then said, yes. He was quiet long enough that she knew she'd surprised him. I know who she is. She saved the lives of hundreds of Allied airmen in the Great War. She is famous for saying that patriotism is not enough. And this is your hero, a woman executed by the enemy. A woman who made a difference, Isabel said, studying him. I'm relying on you, a criminal and a communist, to help me make a difference. Perhaps I am as mad at impetus as they say. Who are they? Everyone. She paused, felt her expectation gather close. She had made a point of never trusting anyone, and yet she believed Gayton. He looked at her as if she mattered. You will take me, as you promised. You know how such bargains are sealed? How? With a kiss. Quit teasing. This is serious. What's more serious than a kiss on the brink of war? He was smiling, but not quite. That banked anger was in his eyes again, and it frightened her, reminded her that she really didn't know him at all. I would kiss a man who was brave enough to take me into battle with him. I think you know nothing of kissing, he said with a sigh. Shows what you know. She rolled away from him and immediately missed his touch. Trying to be nonchalant, she rolled back to to face him and felt his breath on her eyelashes. You may kiss me then, to steal our deal. He reached out slowly, put a hand around the back of her neck, and pulled her toward him. Are you sure? He asked, his lips almost touching hers. She didn't know if he was asking about going off to war or granting permission for a kiss. But right now, in this moment, it didn't matter. Isabella traded kisses with boys as if they were pennies to be left on park benches and lost in chair cushions. Meaningless. Never before, not once, had she really yearned for a kiss. We, she whispered, leaning toward him. At his kiss, something opened up inside the scraped, emptied interior of her heart, unfurled. For the first time, her romantic novels made sense. She realized that the landscape of a woman's soul could change as quickly as a world at war. I love you, she whispered. She hadn't said those words since she was four years old. Then it had been to her mother. At her declaration, Gaines' expression changed, hardened. The smile he gave her was so tight and false, she couldn't make sense of it. What? Did I do something wrong? No, of course not, he said. We are lucky to have found each other, she said. We are not lucky, Isabel. Trust me on this. As he said it, he drew her in for another kiss. She gave herself over to the sensations of the kiss, let it become her whole universe, universe, and knew knew finally how it felt to be enough for someone. When Vienne woke, she noticed the quiet first. Somewhere a bird sang. She lay perfectly still in bed, listening. Beside her, Sophie, Sophie snored and grumbled in her sleep. Anne went to the window, lifting the blackout shade. In her yard, apple branches hung like broken arms from the trees. The gate hung sideways, two of its three hinges ripped out. Across the road, the hayfield was flattened, the flowers crushed. The refugees who'd come, though, through had left the longings and refuse in their wake. Suitcases, buggies, coats too heavy to carry and too hot to wear, pillowcases and wagons. Fianne went downstairs and cautiously opened the front door, listening for noise, hearing none. She unlatched the lock and turned the knob. They had destroyed her garden, ripping up anything that looked edible, leaving broken stalks and mounds of dirt. Everything was ruined, gone. Feeling defeated, she walked around the house to the backyard, which had also been ravaged. She was about to go back inside when she heard a sound, a mewling, maybe a baby crying. There it was again. Had someone left an infant behind? She moved cautiously across the yard to the wooden pergola draped in roses and jasmine. Isabel lay curled on the ground, her dress ripped to shreds, her face cut up and bruised, her left eye swollen, nearly shut, a piece of paper pinned to her bodice. Isabel! Her sister's chin tilted upward slightly. She opened one bloodshot eye. V, she said in a cracked, hoarse voice. Thanks for locking me out. Vianne went to her sister and knelt beside her. Isabel, you were covered in blood and bruised. Were you? Isabel seemed not to understand for a moment. Oh, it's not my blood. Most of it isn't, anyway. She looked around. Where's Kate? What? Isabel staggered to her feet, almost toppling over. Did he leave me? He did. She started to cry. He left me. Come on, Vianne said gently. She guided her sister into the cool interior of the house, where Isabel kicked off her blood splattered shoes, let them crack into the wall and clatter to the floor. Bloody footprints followed them to the bathroom, tucked beneath the stairs. While Vianne heated water and filled the bath, Isabel sat on the floor, her legs splayed out, her feet discolored by blood, muttering to herself and wiping tears from her eyes, which turned to mud on her cheeks. When the bath was ready, Vianne returned to Isabel, gently undressing her. Isabel was like a child, pliable, whimpering in pain. Vianne unbuttoned the back of Isabel's once red dress and peeled it away, afraid that the slightest breath might topple her sister over. Isabel's lacy garments, undergarments, were stained in places with blood. Vianne unlaced the corseted midsection of the foundation and eased it off. Isabel gritted her teeth and stepped into the tub. Leaned back. Isabel did as she was told, and Vian poured hot water over her sister's head, keeping the water from her sister's eyes. All the while, as she washed Isabel's dirty hair and bruised body, she kept up a steady, soothing croon of meaningless words meant to comfort. She helped Isabel out of the tub and dried her body with a soft, white towel. Isabel stared at her, stock-jawed, blank blank-eyed. How about some sleep, Vian said. Sleep, Isabel mumbled, her head lolling to one side. Van brought Isabel in a nightdress that smelled of lavender and rose water and helped her into it. Isabel could hardly keep her eyes open as Vianne guided her up to the upstairs bedroom and settled her beneath a light blanket. Isabel was asleep before her head hit the pillow. Isabel woke to darkness. She remembered daylight. Where was she? She sat up so quickly her head spun. She took a few shallow breaths and then looked around. The upstairs bedroom at Le Hardin, her old room. It did not give her a warm feeling. How often had Madame Doom locked her into the bedroom for her own good? Don't think about that, she said aloud. An even worse memory followed. gayton He had abandoned her after all. It filled her with the kind of bone-deep disappointment she knew so well. Had she learned nothing in life? People left. She knew that. They especially left her. She dressed in the shapeless blue house dress and had left draped across the foot of her bed. Then she went down the narrow, shallow step-stairs, holding onto the iron banister. Every painful step felt like a triumph. Downstairs, the house was quiet except for the crackling, staticky sound of a radio at an on at a low volume. She was pretty sure Maurice Chevalier was singing a love song. Perfect. Vianne was in the kitchen, wearing a gingham apron over a pale yellow house dress. A floral scarf covered her hair. She was peeling potatoes with a paring knife. Behind her, a cast-iron pot made a cheery little bubbling sound. The aromas made Isabel's mouth water. Vianne rushed forward to pull out a chair at the small table in the kitchen's corner. Here. Isabel fell onto the seat. Van brought her a place that was already prepared, a plate that was already prepared, a hunk of stillborn bread, a triangle of cheese, a smear of quince paste, quince paste, quince, quince—I don't know what that is—and a few slices of ham. Isabel took the bread in her red, scraped-up hands, lifting it to her face, breathing in the yeasty smell. Her hands were shaking as she picked up a knife and slathered the bread with fruit and cheese. When she set down the knife, it clattered. She picked up the bread and bit into it—the single best bite of food of her life. The hard crust of the bread, its pillow soft interior, their buttery cheese, and the fruit all combined to make her practically spoon. She ate the rest of it like a madwoman, barely noticing the cup of cafe noir her sister had set down next beside her. Where's Sophie? Isabel asked, her cheeks bulging with food. It was difficult to stop eating, even to be polite. She reached for a peach, felt its fuzzy ripeness in her hand, and bit into it. Juice dribbled down her chin. She's next door, playing with Sarah. Do you remember my friend Rachel? I remember her, Isabel said. Van poured your herself a tiny cup of espresso and brought it to the table where she sat down. Isabel burped and covered her mouth. Pardon. I think a lapse in manners can be overlooked, Vian said with a smile. You haven't met Madame Dufour. She No doubt she would hit me with a brick for that transgression, Isabel sighed. Her stomach hurt now. She felt like she might vomit. She wiped her moist chin with her sleeve. What is the news from Paris? The swastika flag flies over from the Eiffel Tower. And Papa? Fine, he says. Worried about me, I'll bet. Isabel said bitterly. He shouldn't have sent me away. But when has he ever done anything else? A look passed between them. It was one of the few memories they shared, that abandonment. But clearly Vian didn't want to remember it. We hear there are more than ten million of you on the roads. The crowds weren't the worst of it, Isabel said. We were mostly women and children, V, and old men and boys. And they just obliterated us. It's over now, thank God, Vian said. It's best to focus on the good. Who is Keaton? You spoke of him in your delirium. Isabel picked at one of the scrapes in the back of her hand, realizing an instant too late that she should have left it alone. The scab ripped away and blood bubbled up. Maybe he has to do with this, Van said when the silence elongated. She pulled a crumpled piece of paper out of her apron pocket. It was a note that had been pinned to Isabel's lattice. Dirty, bloody fingerprints ran across the paper. On it was written, You are not ready. Isabel felt the world drop out from under her. It was a ridiculous, gar- girlish reaction, overblown, and she knew it but still it hit her hard, wounded deep. He had wanted to take her with him until the kiss. Somehow he tasted the lack in her. He's no one, she said grimly, taking the note, crumbling it. Just a boy with black hair and a sharp face who tells lies. He's nothing. Then she looked at Vian. I'm going off to the war. I don't care what anyone thinks. I'll drive an ambulance or roll bandages. Anything. Oh, for heaven's sake, Isabel. Paris is overrun. The Nazis control the city. What does 18-year-old g- girl to do about all of that? I am not hiding out in the country while the Nazis destroy France. And let's face it, you have never exactly felt such relief toward me. Her aching face tightened. I'll be leaving as soon as I can walk. You'll be safe here, Isabel. That's what matters. You must stay. Safe? Isabel spat. You think that is what matters now, Vianne? Let me tell you what I saw out there. French troops running from the enemy. Nazis murdering innocents. Maybe you can ignore that, but I won't. You will stay here and be safe. We will speak of it no more. When have I ever been safe with you, Vianne? Isabel said, seeing hurt blossom in her sister's eyes. I was young, Isabel. I tried to be a mother to you. Oh please, let's not start with a lie. After I lost the baby. Isabel turned her back on her sister and limped away before she could say she said anything unforgivable. She clasped her hands to still the their trembling. This was why she hadn't wanted to return to this house and see her sister, why she'd stayed away for years. There was too much pain between them. She turned up the radio to drown out her thoughts. A voice crackled over their airwaves. Maréchal Pétain speaking to you. Isabel frowned. Pétain was the hero of the Great War, a beloved leader of France. She turned up the volume further. Vianne appeared beside her. I assume the direction of the government of France. Static overtook his deep voice, crackled through it. Isabel thumped the radio impatiently. Our admirable enemy, or our admirable enemy, <laughs> the Nazis are not good. It this says, Our admirable army, which is fighting with a heroism worthy of its long military traditions against an enemy superior in numbers and arms. Static. Isabel hit the radio again, whispering, Zut. In these painful hours, I think of the unhappy refugees who, in extreme misery, clog our roads. I express to them my compassion and my solicitude. It is with a broken heart that I tell you today it is necessary to stop fighting. We've won, Vian said. Shh, Isabel said sharply. Addressed myself last night as the adversary to ask him if he is ready to speak with me, as as soldier to soldier, after the actual fighting is over, and with honor, the means of putting an end to hostilities. The old man's words droned on, saying things like, trying days, and control their anguish, and worst of all, destiny of the fatherland. Then he said the word Isabel never thought she'd hear in France, surrender. Isabel hobbled out of her room on her bloody feet and went into the backyard, needing air suddenly, unable to draw a decent breath. Surrender. France. To Hitler. It must be for the best, her sister said calmly. When had Vianne come out here? You've heard of Marshal Poutine. He is a hero unparalleled. If he says we must quit fighting, we must. I'm sure he'll reason with Hitler, Vianne reached out. Isabel yanked away. The thought of Vianne's comforting touch made her feel sick. She limped around to face her sister. You don't reason with men like Hilter, Hitler. So you know more than our heroes now? I know we shouldn't give up. Vianne made a sking sound, a little scuff of dis- disappointment. If Marichal Baton thinks surrender is best for France, it is. Period. At least the war will be over and our men will come home. You are a fool. Vianne said, fine, and went back into the house. Isabel tented a hand over her eyes and stared up into the bright and cloudless sky. How long would it be before all this blue was filled with German aeroplanes? She didn't know how long she stood there, imagining the worst, remembering how the Nazis had opened fire on innocent women and children in Tours, obliterating them, turning the grass red with their blood. Tante Isabel? Isabel heard the small, tentative voice as if from far away. She turned slowly. A beautiful girl stood at Le Hardin's back door. She had skin like her mother's, as pale as fine porcelain, and expressive eyes that appeared coal black from this distance, as dark as her father's. She could have stepped from the pages of a fairy tale, Snow White or Sleeping Beauty. You can't be Sophie, Isabel said. The last time I saw you, you were sucking your thumb. I still do sometimes, Sophie said with a conspiratorial conspir Conspiratorial? I think tell you. Is that how the vowels will go? Conspiratorial? I'm pretty sure. Sophie said with a conspiratorial smile, You won't tell me? I'm the best of secret keepers. Isabel moved toward her, thinking, My niece. Family. Should I tell you a secret about me just so that we're fair? Sophie nodded earnestly, her eyes widening. I can make myself invisible. No, you can't. Isabel saw Vianne appear at the back door. Ask your mom, I have sneaked out of trains and climbed out of windows and run away from convent dungeons. All of this because I can disappear. Isabel, Vian said sternly. Sophie stared up at is- Isabel enraptured. Really? Isabel glanced at Vian. It is easy to disappear when no one is looking at you. I am looking at you, Sophie said. Will you make yourself dis- invisible now? Isabel laughed of course not magic to be its best must be unexpected don't you agree and now shall we play a game of checkers